Well, this morning we're going to be looking at a psalm, Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is a, a very, very unique psalm. And I say that because David wrote some things in there that I think that most people in his time would not ever understand. And maybe he was the only one who understood this. The psalm is so unique because it looks, it reveals the soul of man, but it also reveals the heart of God. And we're going to be looking back and forth between Second uh, Samuel and chapters 11 and 12, which was the reason why this psalm was written. And you're not going to have to turn there. I'll just refer to it, and you're just going to have to believe me because, as you know, pastors don't ever lie. But, oops, we're over here. No. <laughs> but something I want to keep in mind as we're going through this psalm, Moses wrote something to the children of Israel in Numbers chapter 32 when he was talking about their obedience and disobedience. And he said that your sin will find you out. And this is really what this psalm is about. It's about someone's sin being found out, that and David. And it's really a personal psalm for me. I don't know how many times I've prayed this psalm over and over again when I've fallen into sin that this has been my plea and my cry to God. And yes, I know, you're probably surprised that I do sin. Yes, I do. Every now and then. It's been almost an hour. <laughs> but we're going to be looking at three topics that I came up with. One of them is being broken over sin, what God requires, and the last one, your identity in Him. And just to kind of give you a background of this psalm, uh, it's pretty obvious what this psalm, why this psalm was written. It puts it right in the title there. It says, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone to Bathsheba. But the story begins in 2 Samuel chapter 11. It begins by saying it happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out. You know, David wasn't where he should have been. And his armies were in battle, but he wasn't. And for some reason, he was woken up in his sleep, and I think he was just restless as his time. Something was going on in his mind. And he begins to walk on the roof. And it just so happens by some miracle that he sees this woman taking a bath on the roof. Beautiful woman. And at that point, it says that he saw her. And that word in the Hebrew, saw, actually means that he gazed upon her. He contemplated he thought about it. He entertained his thoughts. And by doing that, he carried out a sinful act that he never should have done. Very uncharacteristic of, like David, of David. And so what happens is that he has a relationship with this woman, Bathsheba, and she gets pregnant. And so David panics and starts to cover up his sin or tries to and attempts to. And so he comes up with an idea. I'll get her husband who's in my army. I'll call him back home, Uriah, and I'll have him come home and spend time with his wife, and he'll think that the child is his. And obviously, Bathsheba had to be behind this plan, even though it doesn't say that, but she had to have some kind of uh, approval of this plot of David's. So he brings Uriah home, and not knowing that Uriah was such a loyal servant, he doesn't leave David's side. He says, why, why would I come and spend time with my wife when my, my brothers are out there in the battlefield? And he says, no way, I'm not going to take any pleasure in this. I'm going to stay right by my king's side. So that doesn't work, so David comes up with another plan. Okay, I'll, I'll get him drunk. I'll, you know, get him a little tipsy, send him home, that'll surely work. No, he's too loyal to David. He stays by his, his, his doorside. So David comes up with an alternative plan, which again is very uncharacteristic of David. He comes up with a plot to kill him. He sends a note to his commanding officer saying, hey, put Uriah on the front line, all you go to the front lines, and then retreat but don't tell Uriah anything. Leave him there. And they do. And he gets slaughtered and he gets killed. And it's amazing how your sin, when you're holding on to sin, 
what kind of plots you'll come up with, what kind of schemes, not even thinking clearly. And then you get to 2 Samuel chapter 12. Nathan the prophet comes in. And Nathan was a prophet of God. And a prophet of God was actually speaking the words of God. So this is actually God speaking to David. And Nathan tells him the story. He says, there was this rich man who was exceedingly rich and had many, many flocks and herds. And there was this poor man who had this one little ewe lamb. And he said he nourished this little ewe lamb. He fed him at his table. They grew up together. They grew up with his children. He actually looked at him as uh, at the lamb as his daughter. Uh, he, he drank out of the same cup, ate out of the same plate. Basically, to say this was his household pet. Well, this rich man decides that, you know, he has his guest over and he wants to feed them. So instead of taking from his own flock, he takes the little ewe lamb from this, this poor man. And at that point, David gets so angry. He said that he's exceedingly angry. He was, he was just so aroused with anger. He says, as the Lord lives, this man, what he's done, shall surely die for it. Not only that, he's going to pay back this man fourfold of his herd because he had no pity. And again, it's amazing to, to see David's heart behind this, this judgment being so strict and so harsh and him being so angry that he couldn't see two feet in front of him because of his own sin. Nathan tells David, or actually God tells David, you're the man. You're the one. You're the one who had no pity. You're the one who destroyed this family. You're the one who deserves what you already judged, death. And we know that David is confronted when he's confronted with his sin. He's brought to this place of repentance, of true repentance. And as a result of that repented heart, he pens this beautiful psalm. He says, have mercy on me, O God, <clears throat> according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgression, and my sin is always before you. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak, blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in my sin, or in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with your generous spirit. I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you did not desire sacrifice, or I would give it. You not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, and a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then they shall offer bulls on your altar. Man, when you read this psalm, David didn't leave much out, did he? Most of us wouldn't unveil or just speak about our own ugliness of our sin like David does here, no less billions of people who would eventually read this psalm. But I know what David's coming from. I know the heart that he's coming from here. 
You know that saying that confession is good for the soul? Well, that's not what David's doing here. You know, I know exactly what he's doing because this happened to me when I first came back to the Lord. I wanted to tell everybody what was going on in my life. I remember my pastor said, you need to go to this men's retreat. And it was just right after I got back and I was at this retreat. And I remember being in the bathroom washing my hands next to this guy who later became my friend. He was one of those guys that was just really very proper and always just very well-dressed. And even at the retreat, we're up in the mountains and he's in slacks and loafers, you know. He's one of those guys, just really neat and clean all the time. Not that I'm a dirty pig, but I'm just saying, you know, <laughs> kind of making a comparison here. But I meant he asked me, hey, how you doing? And I said, oh, funny you should ask. And I started just telling him everything about my life and what happened uh, from beginning to end. And I'm watching him in the mirror, and he's looking at me like kind of strange, like this guy is kind of whack, man. What is he talking about? I don't want to hear all your dirty laundry. And I just couldn't help him. I just kept telling him over and over again. And he's like washing his hands. He's running out the bathroom door, and I'm chasing him down. and say, hey, wait a minute, I'm not done yet. And I began to tell him the whole story, what happened to me. And then he looked at me when I was done, and he goes, wow. Because that's amazing what God did in your life. And that's what the story was behind this whole psalm here. It's not because he was confessing his sins. He was overwhelmed because he didn't get what he deserved. I didn't get what I deserved. David was overwhelmed because he knew what he deserved. According to Levitical law, in Leviticus chapter 20 and 24, he deserved death. That was punishable by death. Adultery and murder was punishable by death. And King David was also familiar with his predecessor, King Saul, and what happened to him. Look at verse 11 again in Psalm 51, where he says, Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. David knew that God had every right to remove his anointing from him. He could take his Holy Spirit from him at any point and any time. In the Old Testament, you know, that's the way it was, that's the way God worked. He put his Holy Spirit on certain people, but he also took it out if need be, if he wanted to, like he did with King Saul. And I don't know about you, I'm so glad that I live on this side of the cross because Peter put it so beautifully after the ascension of Jesus Christ in Acts chapter 2. Peter's preaching a sermon and he said that the fulfillment of Joel chapter 2 verse 28 was fulfilled where it says that, and it comes to pass afterward that I'll pour all my, all my spirit on all flesh. And Paul puts it a few times in his letters, he says that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. That seal means that we were stamped. God stamps us and says, you're mine. You're my daughter. You're my son. That word stamp is a guarantee that we will live for him, with him forever. And no one can snatch us from his hand. And let me just say that if you're in that place right now where you feel like, God, man, you know, I'm, I'm doing something where I shouldn't be doing, I hope God doesn't take his spirit from me. Let me just say that you're probably walking too close to the edge because you shouldn't have that feeling. You shouldn't be feeling or living your life that way. Most likely that you're close, too close to the edge and hopefully by the end of this service we'll be taking care of that. But you're probably wondering why, how come David didn't receive the same treatment as Saul when you put them side by side? Saul, his sin was he rebelled against the Lord. He was disobedient to the Lord. David in the same way, but yet he committed adultery and murder. You know, why the difference in judgment? Why did he get mercy? How come he didn't get what he deserved? And the reason why is because of what David's heart was all about. David didn't make excuses. He was broken over his sin, which is our first point, being broken over sin. Excuse me for one minute. Sorry about that. Just getting over a cold and 
I'm on that verge of coughing. I don't want to cough in anybody's face. <clears throat> but David was broken over his sin. He was crushed by his sin. And it wasn't because he was caught. It was because he was just knew that he had sinned against God. He was exposed, but he wasn't repented because he was caught. Oh, I'm busted. Now I've got to repent. No. He knew exactly what happened. He sinned against God. And when you look at this, what he, he does in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses the Psalm 51 and verse 4, David didn't try and justify his sins. When he was caught, what did he say? He didn't say, well, you know what? I have other wives and, you know, they're just not, you know, cutting it. So I decided to go with Bathsheba. Or he didn't say, hey, you know what? This is the way my dad was. This is the way my grandfather was and my great-grandfather. It's just, you know, it's just who I am. No, what he said is this, I have sinned against the Lord. Verse 4, against you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. David was broken over his sin. And you can hear it in the cry of his desperation when he says in verse 1 in Psalm 51, look what he says, have mercy on me. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. <coughs> Sorry. Notice that David, in these verses, he doesn't leave anything out. He wants to be made clean. He wants to be made whole. He realizes that he sinned against God Most High. And he uses words like transgressions, iniquity, and sin. Transgression means, that, it means the word rebellion. He willfully rebelled against God. Iniquity means perversity and depravity. And the sin that he's talking about here, he's talking about habitual sin. And yes, G and, and yes David's sin was against Bathsheba and it was also against Uriah. But first and foremost, it was a willful sin against God, his God, his king, the one who put him in the place that he was in. David was so disgusted with his sin that he says in verse 7, purge me. That word purge means to cleanse or means to separate myself from sin. It actually means to carry it away, to remove it from me, remove the guilt, remove the defilement, the crime that I committed. And let me ask you this question. Is that how sin hits you? Are you sick of sin? Are you tired when you sin? Are you like just disgusted with your own sin? And I say that because a lot of times as Christians, we tend to get hardened, our hearts. We get complacent, especially in our society. I mean, we're surrounded by it, constantly surrounded by sin and dark darkness. But at times as Christians, sometimes when we look at our own sin, we just tend to get hard-hearted sometimes. And we start justifying it, thinking it's okay. David was broken over his sin. And David, I believe, the reason why he was exposed in this way, because this was something that was in his heart already. God wanted to work it out in his life. God knew that if I'm going to bring this man closer to me, that we've got to clean him out. And I think that's what God does to us a lot. Is that when we first come to Christ, we come to him with open hearts and open mind, but then God all of a sudden, like, you need to be cleansed of other things. And we carry stuff with us, baggage, or issues we like to call them. We all have plenty of issues, right? But David called it for what it was. It was sin in his life. When you look at that story with him and Bathsheba, it began by David having too much idle time, too much time on his hands. It also began by David looking and gazing at, at Bathsheba 
at that time when he saw her, he could have turned away, but he entertained his thoughts. And by entertaining his thoughts, he carried out this act of sin. It actually talks about him rising up from bed. He couldn't sleep. And usually when you're anticipating something or when you want to carry out sin, you will tend to lose sleep. And I know I sound like an expert, but that's because I am an expert on sin. I've been practicing it all of my life, so it should be an expert by now. You know, it's amazing when you're overwhelmed with sin or you're anticipating something that you can't see two feet in front of you like David. I think David already had in mind what he was going to do, and I say that because David had already disregarded the act of marriage or God's plan for marriage. We don't know exactly how many wives he had, but we know for sure there's at least eight mentioned in the Bible. And there's a scripture in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 17, It talks about kings, how kings were to act and their behavior. And there was three things that are mentioned that are not to be multiplied. It was gold, silver, and wives. Be content with the one wife, but David wasn't. And again, having too much idle time on his hands, it it caused him to stumble. Have you ever heard the saying, idle hands are the devil's workshop? It's not a a biblical term, but I mean, there's just some truth to it. And there was an expert on that, and that was King Solomon. He wrote a lot about idle time, idle hands, laziness, spiritual laziness. I'm going to read a couple of them to you. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 5. It says, fools fold their idle hands, leading them to ruin. And also in Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 18. Through laziness, the rafters sag. Because of idle hands, the house leaks. In other words, having idle time or idle hands is going to lead to destruction. Too much time on your hands will lead to destruction. We need to stay occupied. Your children need to stay occupied. Too much idle time in front of that TV set is not healthy for them. It's not good for them. Their minds will wander. Our minds will wander. And I don't know about you. It's just that I have to be occupied constantly. My mind will just go in all kinds of different places. I love the way Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 16. He says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. David could have avoided the whole situation if he would have stayed occupied and not entertained his thoughts. And you and I, you know, we're surrounded by this dark place. We have to stay occupied. We have to be continuing doing what God's called us to do. You know, and we also have an enemy that's coming against us constantly. He's a roaring lion waiting to devour us. But in all reality, I don't give him much credit, you know, because he doesn't need much help. We're in the flesh, right? We're constantly battling against our flesh. And I think James puts it really, really well. Even it paints a perfect picture of what happened with David. It says in James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. I mean, it sounds like a cancer. If it's not dealt with, if it's sin is being harbored in your life, it's going to continue to grow. And it's going to just come out one way or the other. But it's our own desire that draws us away. The enemy doesn't need much help. All he has to do is come alongside you and see you being tempted, and he just goes, boom, pushes you, and you fall right in. But James does give a solution. He says, get rid of all the filth. James chapter 1, verse 21. 
So get rid of all the filth and evil in your lives and humbly accept the word God has planted in your hearts for it has a power to save your souls. But don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you are fooling yourselves. And that's so true. We've got to be doers of the word, not just hearers only. You know, Pastor Ted exhorts us every day, every Sunday, put feet to your faith. And that's what he's saying here. He's quoting this James. He's not just saying that as a goodbye or just a, you know, a phrase that just fits the, the purpose. He's saying it because he wants you to walk in that. I've given you the word. Now go out and put it to practice. Live it out in your lives. And listen, while we're on the topic of sin, don't ever think that you're above it. There's not one person, not one pastor in here that can say, I'm above that sin. Or look at that person, or look at David. I would never do what he did. Or I never do what that person did. Listen, Paul put it really well. He said that, therefore let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. We're not above it. No one is. You need to always guard your heart and guard your minds. And listen, and don't ever think, and this is what I hear all the time, that this is my sin. It only affects me. You know, it's not affecting my spouse. It's not affecting my family. It does. It will. If you don't deal with it, if you keep harboring the sin in your life, it's going to affect everything in your life. Again, trust me, I know from experience, it can affect everything from your finances to your household, everything. And the more you harbor sin, the uglier it gets and the harder it gets to deal with. It'll actually eat you up from the inside out. And this is what David wrote about with his sin. He said this in verse 38, or Psalm 38, verses 1 through 10. He says, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your wrath, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. For your arrows pierce me deeply, and your hand presses down. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your anger, nor any health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds are foul and festering because of my foolishness. I am troubled. I'm bowed down greatly. I go mourning all day long. For my loins are full of inflammation, and there's no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and severely broken. I groan because of the turmoil of my heart. Lord, all my desire is before you, and my sign is not hidden from you. My heart pants. My strength fails me. As for the light of my eyes, it has gone from me. Sounds fun, right? No, it doesn't. Harboring sin will harden your heart towards your sin. It will actually bring you to a place of complacency and compromise. You can actually create a sinful environment. And what I mean is that you can create a sinful environment in your home, just like we have in our society today. In your home, your kids will have that effect. What you used to say were bad things for your kids or you shouldn't watch these kind of movies, you'll start compromising and saying that that's, that's okay, it's not that bad. It is bad. Are you broken over your sin like David was? You know, we live in such a dark time and we're called to be the light of the world and we need to make that stand. One of the issues that Nathan brings out to David, he says, you've given the enemy reason to blaspheme. And it's true, he tainted his, his, his testimony. It hurt his testimony, not only that, God's testimony as well as the children of Israel, the entire nation. You know, Isaiah put it so well. In Isaiah chapter 5, he says that, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. If we don't deal with harbored sin, 
the consequences will continue to grow and they'll be greater and greater and greater. And we see that with David's life. David had some severe consequences. He lost his son. God told him that the sword would never depart from his house. He said that someone's going to rise from your household. He'll be your, your adversary. And he's going to lie with your wives. And that was his son Absalom who did that. But listen again. Does sin break your heart? When you sin against God, does it break your heart? Does it truly break your heart? Not like Judas Iscariot. He was remorseful, but he wasn't repented. David, on the other hand, he was broken over his sin. He was like Paul says, he had that godly sorrow that led him to a place of repentance. But look back in verse 14 in Psalm 51. David also cries out, he says, deliver me from guilt, the guilt of bloodshed. David had a lot of guilt with that bloodshed, especially with Uriah. And many of us probably can relate to guilt, right? Sin over guilt. A lot of us carry that guilt with us. And so how can I get rid of that guilt? How can I be like David? How can I ask for God to make me white as snow? And that's an incredible prayer. How can my heart be white as snow when I have this guilt? Well, I'm going to give you four quick points. Number one, acknowledge your sin. Acknowledge that it's sin and acknowledge that you've sinned against God. And that's what he says in verse 3 of Psalm 51. He says, for I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is always before me. The New Living Translation reads it this way, for I recognize my rebellion and it haunts me day and night. Just acknowledge that you've sinned against God. Acknowledge that. And sometimes you have to make things right with other people because you sin against other people. David, in fact, recognized that he was a sinner, that he willfully rebelled against God. And he needed atonement. He needed reconciliation. And that's what we need to cry out for, atonement and reconciliation. His sin was always before him, and he knew that the only way out was by God granting him mercy and granting him compassion. That's why he began this psalm in verse 1, and I want to put it up on the board there in the New Living Translation where it says, have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion. God's compassion, that's what he needed. That's what we all need. We need it every day. And Jeremiah spoke of this, of this compassion. He said that God's compassion is new every morning. And this is what he said in Lamentations 3.22. He says, through the mercies of the Lord, we're not consumed. Why? Because... His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in him. Listen, the second thing that you need to remember is to remember where you came from. Remember what you were saved from. Sometimes as Christians, we forget. We're not any different than the children of Israel. God was constantly reminding them, remember what I brought you from. You know, the word remember, it's used most in the book of Psalms, because the books of Psalms are Psalms of remembrance. That's what they do. They remind all of us what God has brought us from, what he saved us from. And I know some of you are probably thinking, well, you know, I'm not as bad as David, you know, or I don't have a past like Pastor Jim. You know, that's, you know. Listen, it doesn't matter if you were raised in a godly home and you never struggled with drugs or alcohol or you never fell into sexual sin. It doesn't matter the price that Christ paid for you is still the same, whether it was me or you. It's still the same. It cost him his life. His blood was shed for every sin, all the sins of the world. 
The third thing is that don't be afraid of this cleansing. Don't be afraid of it. I think that's what happens to a lot of us, that we're afraid what's going to happen. What's God going to do if I confess this sin or if I reveal this sin? What's he going to do? Yeah, he's going to expose it, but it's going to be good. It always is good. He sees a, a bigger picture than we do. He knows already. Nothing's hidden from him. He already knows. All he wants you to do is confess it. He knows your struggles. He knows what you're battling. And that's what verse 6 says here. David writes, Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts. That's what he wants. He wants you to have that truth because he knows that's what's going to set you free. It's not that he's trying to scold you or punish you because you're hiding the sin. He wants you to be set free from it. And it's just a simple fact that we just need to confess it. You know, 1 John 1.9, 1, one of my favorite verses, and if you have it in your Bible, highlight it, or if you don't, you should have it highlighted. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the last thing that you have to do is just accept God's forgiveness. I know that sounds simple, but I talk to so many people who struggle with this one. God can't forgive me. You know what I've done? There's no way he can forgive me. He can't, he, he can't take me back. Listen, in order for you to be released from the guilt, you have to accept his forgiveness. And a lot of times we phrase it as, you know, you, know, you, you have to forgive yourself. Well, that's what we're talking about. You have to accept God's forgiveness. Because if you don't, you're cheapening the price that he paid for you. You're cheapening the cross. You're cheapening the blood that was shed for you. Because his blood covers all of it. Well, the second point I want to look at is the requirements of God. You know, what did the Lord require of David when he was exposed of his sin? What does he require from you and I? And I use this phrase, the requirements of God, because I think a lot of times we think that in our minds when we sin against God and when we come back, that we have to do something, you know? I've got to do something to earn the standing back with God. What, do I, what should I do? You know, should I go help this old lady cross the street or should I go mow this person's lawn? There's something I must be doing. There's not a whole lot you can do except accept his forgiveness. But this is where the psalm, I think, gets incredibly deep. And this is where David, I think, had this incredible insight that I don't think anyone or any man in his time really understood. Obviously, he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. But look what he says in verse 16. He says, For you do not, require, you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You did not delight in burnt offering. Verse 17, The sacrifices of God... I have broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise or you will not disregard. You'll never turn away that broken heart. He says another similar thing in Psalm 34, verse 18. He says, the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and save such as has a contrite spirit. You do not desire sacrifice. I'm sure most Jews in his age and his time we're probably rolling over in this grave. What do you mean he doesn't want sacrifice? He doesn't desire that. We're all about sacrifice. That's our tradition. That's our forgiveness. David figured it out, what God wanted. He just wanted his heart. He wanted the heart behind the sacrifice. That's what God was looking for the whole time. And David figured it out. And how did he figure it out? Because of the brokenness of his sin. This word broken that he's talking about here, and we, I know we use this phrase a lot, but it... The word broken actually means to burst. It means to break down. It means to crush. Contrite, very similar, but it means to crush, to powder. It means to collapse. It means that your heart is just completely undone. 
totally exposed to God so that he can do a work. It's that picture of having that heart of stone broken and becoming a heart of flesh. And then he also says in verse 7, wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. And verse 10, create in me a clean, which actually means pure. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast or a right spirit within me. And that word create is the exact same word in the Hebrew in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, where it says God created. And really what David is asking for is something that was a mystery to the whole Old Testament saints. Paul talked a lot about the mysteries of the gospel, that it wasn't revealed to them. They knew God had a plan, but they didn't know exactly what it was. Well, David knew exactly what it was. What David is asking for is what Paul talked about in Romans chapter 12 when he says, to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that word transform, talking about the metamorphosis. That's what David's asking for here. He's not just asking for God's forgiveness. He's saying, change my heart. Do a supernatural work in my heart. I'm broken over my sin. Change me, God. Transform me into a man of God. He realized that God was more concerned about the relationship between him and God than he was in anything else. It wasn't about his works. It wasn't about his sacrifices. It wasn't about him being a great warrior. God was more concerned about the love relationship, the intimate relationship that he wanted with David. That's why he exposed him to his sin. And that's what he does for you and I today. He exposed these things in our lives because he wants more of us. He wants us to be set free. He wants that clear communication between you and him. Intimacy. And I know when we talk about intimacy, we, you know, we have this own picture in our mind. What is intimacy? How do you get intimate with God? Well, how do you get intimate with your wife? You just spend time with them, right? Or your husband, you spend time with them. And the same thing with the Lord. The most intimate that you can be with the Lord is when you're praying. But yet it's the least thing that we do, isn't it? God desired that for, for David, and David developed that by having that brokenness over his sin. And it reminds me of the story in Luke chapter 7 where it talks about this sinful woman. Jesus is in Simon, the Pharisee's house, and this woman's sitting behind Jesus crying, and she's washing Jesus' feet with her tears and with oil. And Jesus basically said, see her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. And he says that he who sins much loves much. That's what happened with David. That's why he was transformed. And when you look at this psalm, you see a pattern of the heart of God, how confession brings forgiveness. And in forgiveness, you experience God's loving kindness and abundant mercies. And you put all these things together and it creates this deeper, intimate love relationship with Jesus. And through this intimate relationship, is this is where you're going to find your identity. And this is our final point, your identity in Christ. And let me ask you this question. If you were to ask yourself this question, and I want you to ask yourself this question right now, is who is your identity in? Where does your confidence come from? Who's your identity in? If you look at David's life, if anyone could have some self-identity, it would have been him. David was extremely talented. He was, he was a man of valor. He was a great warrior. He was very crafty. He was very good at what he did as far as being a warrior. But he was also, it wasn't in his abilities to fight it wasn't his ability to take on a lion and a bear. His, his confidence didn't come from his power and authority as being a king. He didn't find it in his riches. 
He could have found it in his talent as a musician or as a sweet psalmist, but he didn't. He realized that his identity was in God and God alone. It came from him. That's why he writes in Psalm 56, verse 11, he says, In God I put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? There's nothing that can come against me if my identity is in God. And when he writes about himself in Psalm 21, he says, For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the mercy of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Who is your identity in? A lot of us have our identity in different things. Is your identity in your spouse, maybe? I know you're looking at each other and saying, yeah, I don't think so. No. But that's a very common thing, believe it or not. Another common thing is that your identity could be in your career or maybe in your riches if you have a lot of money. Some people have their identity in their children. Those who are talented may have it in their talents and gifts. But listen, you've been chosen by God and your identity needs to be in Him and Him alone, first and foremost. And you're only going to find that if you're broken over your sin and you're going to find that when you're having that deep, intimate love relationship with Him. You know, Peter put it, put it so beautifully when he talked about identity. First Peter 2, verses 9 and 10, it says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once not a people, but now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now obtained mercy. Listen, David understood the relationship between himself and God that the relationship superseded everything else. And that should be the same for you and I. Relationship supersedes everything. Everything. Your works, everything. Your love relationship with the Lord, your works are are a result of that. But remember that relationship supersedes everything, including your knowledge. And a lot of times we get to that place where, yeah, you know, I got to gain more knowledge, more head knowledge. But that's not where it's at. Because if it doesn't go from here to here, it really is fruitless. It's useless. Paul put it so beautifully when he talked about that in Ephesians chapter 3. He says this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend what is, with all the saints what is the breath the length, the height, and the depth. And this is the key right here. To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That know that he's talking about, it's an experimental no. It's knowing him experientially. The knowledge, the intellect is not the same. Listen, if I were to ask you, What is eternal life? How would you answer me? I know how kids answer me. They always say, that's being with Jesus in heaven forever. And it is part of it. But Jesus gave a perfect example and explanation of what eternal life is. And a lot of people don't really realize what eternal life is. He says this in John chapter 17, verse 3. He says, and this is eternal life, that that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Again, it's the knowing. It's knowing him. It's the relationship. That's eternal life. It doesn't matter where he is or where we are. It's just being with him. It's knowing him. 
And that's the same thing for us today. It's all about relationship. It's all about intimacy with God. It's coming to him with brokenness of your sins, realizing who he is and who you're not. A willing and surrendered heart is what it takes. Being vulnerable and transparent before him because he knows all things anyway. You know, God is extremely, extremely faithful. And I know we talk about it, we sing about it all the time. But usually when we talk about God's faithfulness, it's always after something good happens to us. You know that passage in Romans chapter 12, or 8, verse 28, where it says, all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. What is good? What we call good and what God calls good are two different things. Him revealing things in our lives or the ugliness of our sin, to him that's good. To us it's not so good, but it is good. And that's what God's faithful in. He's faithful to expose these things, to set you free from these things, and that's what he wants from your life and from your heart. All we have have to do is be willing to change, to be willing to make that sacrifice, to be willing to lay it down. Listen, I want to leave you with a couple of questions before we go into a time of worship and prayer. And these are questions that you can ponder on throughout your day, but I actually prefer that you actually ponder on them right now. Number one, are you broken over your sin? Are there sins in your life that you're holding on to right now that you haven't confessed to God? And number two, who is your identity in? And what steps are you taking to make Jesus your confidence? You know, at this time, I want to go into a time of prayer, a time to allow you to pray, to have some time between you and God. And I'll be honest with you, I woke up at 2 o'clock this morning. Actually, the Lord woke me up at 2 o'clock this morning. And I'm like, Lord, I just want to sleep for just a couple more hours, please. And he says, no, I want you to pray. And he actually gave me a vision of this picture right here of all of you guys sitting here. And he said, I want you to pray. And I started praying. And he was telling me what to pray for. He says, I want you to pray for people in the congregation because there are some people who are in sin right now who are struggling, and I know who they are. I don't, but he does. He says they're, they're in the same sin that David's in. And some are in some sin that, not like David, but there are others. And he also specifically told me this, because I want you to pray because there's people, maybe one or more, that actually is contemplating their life. And so I want us to all bow our hearts and our heads right now. And I want to just be silent Let's just be still for this this moment. I also want to invite the worship team back up, and as we're praying, I want you just to take this time between you and God right now. I'm not going to call you up or make you raise your hand. You know who you are. God knows who you are. Just take this time just to confess before him. I know you're contemplating something. You're contemplating to act on the sin, or maybe you have already. You need to just come clean before him because he knows already. And just pray this prayer. Ask him, Lord, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Wash me and make me white as snow.